I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. This week on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, we're raising a glass and saying cheers. It's a word with so many meanings, from hello, goodbye, to thank you, to formal and informal toast, to that wonderful feeling we get when someone or something just makes us smile. We'll talk with artist Liza Donnelly, whose cartoons for The New Yorker magazine and other publications have brought enjoyment and a music to folks around the globe. And later, we'll sit down with someone who knows a thing or two about cheers, literally, Gary Portnoy, the singer and co-writer of one of America's most iconic sitcom theme songs, joins the show. They said something like, you know, we just want saddish kind of people in a smoky bar at two in the morning. So they were giving hints and clues and all along the way. But ultimately, I guess we had to, you know, translate that into a song. It's time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. If we can say a chef will cook to nourish the body, we can surely say a cartoonist creates food for thought. With their dynamic ability to instigate excitement, amusement, and a new perspective through the medium of pen and paper. Joining us is a very gifted artist who has brought countless enjoyment to many around the globe. A contributor to the New Yorker magazine for more than 40 years, Liza Donnelly is a writer and award-winning cartoonist, drawing cartoons and writing about culture and politics. A contributor for CBS News and CNN, her cartoons are in the Library of Congress Prince Collection and are collected in numerous books around the world. As a speaker, Liza delivered a very popular TED Talk, drawing upon humor for change, which was translated into 38 languages and viewed over one and a quarter million times, and has delivered talks to the UN in New York and Geneva. She's covered presidential debates, State of the Union elections, the Emmys, the Golden Globes, the Grammys, the BET Awards, the Tonys, and I could go on and on. Donnelly has been a cultural envoy to the U.S. State Department traveling around the world to speak about freedom of speech, cartoons, and women's rights. Liza, thanks for joining us today. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you, George. It's great to be here. Okay, so I have to ask you right off the, off the top, because I've told you this personally, and now we can, we can let it out, just how you kind of saved me through you know, turmoil times in the world. And then you see a Liza Donnelly cartoon. Oh, thank you. <laughs> changes your day. Thank you. Which means it's changing it for so many other people. How did you start? Uh, well, I, a long time ago, I started a long time ago. Um, and it was, it was, it was a similar uh, motivation as I wanted to make my mother smile. So um, as a child, I was drawing and then uh, she actually gave me a book of cartoons by James Thurber and uh, a piece of paper and a pencil. And, and uh, I traced, actually traced Thurber's drawings. If anybody no, doesn't know James Thurber, you should look him up because he's he was wonderful. I didn't meet him, but he, um, he was a wonderful New Yorker cartoonist. Anyway, I, I traced it and it made her smile and I was hooked. So how did that then evolve to you became, becoming a cartoonist? I mean, I mean, did you start in art and then kind of graduate into cartoons or was the cartoon the first creative pop? Cartoon was the first creative, although I was told I was drawing from really young, but I, um, I'd cartooned all my life. So I, that was a theme, a, 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 an ongoing thing that I was always doing. And I went to college and I studied art in college, but I also studied biology because I plan A was being a biologist of some sort. I didn't think I could make a living at cartooning. So, um, I went to a school that was good in biology and has small art department. Uh, so I studied art and I kept cartooning and that was my thing. Then went to went to New York. Uh, I actually got an internship at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. 
after college. And it was just a dream come true. That was a dream come true to start. That was a wonderful place to work. But I kept drawing cartoons. Liza, what's the creative process like with a cartoon? Because one thing I really enjoy about all of your cartoons that I've read is you seem to be able to take giant ideas with real social and political ramifications and just reduce them down to a few words and an image that just encapsulates it, makes fun of it, and makes it relatable to so many people. Do do you start with a big idea and try and shrink it down, or is it just an intuitive pop? Uh, you know, that's a good question. So kind of, I think it's both. We, most of us don't really know where we get our ideas, but I've been, I've been uh, thinking about it for my whole career. Like, where does this, where does this come from? Cause you, you want to repeat it, repeat it. And you don't always, um, you're not always able to do that. But um, if you like women's rights is a big idea and, and I, and it's always on my mind that I want to do mm-hmm. something about women's rights. Um, but that's too big an idea to do a cartoon. I mean, it's too big an idea. So you have to sort of, make it more personal, bring it down to the daily thing. You bring it down to personal. Um, and then you can draw from your own personal experience. You can draw from th- something that happened to you or something that happened to your, your friend. And then that's how that might happen. Also, cartoonists are sponges. We're all like this. We're constantly looking at the world and observing. We're, we're often outsiders. We look at uh, what's going on in the world. We pay attention to the media, the news, the culture, all, all across the board. So we know a, a little about a lot of things. <laughs> and th- so it's kind of at the, the tip of your finger. It's in, in the front of your brain, many of these things, and they seep into the cartoons. <laughs> Do you ever look at the blank page and the cartoon comes, or is it always the environment that brings it to the page? Oh, that's, yeah. Uh, it's it's both. <laughs> Sorry, George, to be vague. But I think... Uh, Sometimes it, it's involved. It involves uh, just a drawing a silly picture. Whatever comes, like I want to draw a hippopotamus, and you draw mm-hmm. the hippopotamus, and then that becomes like the, you're thinking about um, the the mayoral race or something, and it or 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 a restaurant you were in New York, and it, they they somehow come together. So that's why I keep a, a journal, like a big book, and uh, I just put words on a daily basis. Sit sit at my desk and doodle and sometimes these strange things come together and make a cartoon you never really know where it's going to come from why humor you know a a topic like humans uh, like women's rights for example it's a huge topic and you could write essays or do journalistic articles why humor and and what is the power of humor to really be an advocate for change um well it uh I'm, i'm thinking See, I'm doing I'm doing something that I do with my cartoons. I'm trying to get at the bottom of it. First of all, car- everybody loves cartoons, and they're drawn to cartoons, and they want to see what you're doing. They want to see what the cartoon says. They wanna they want to laugh. They want to be they want to be amused. They want to be relieved of some kind of stress. And so you have their attention, and you can sometimes uh, open their eyes to some new topic, but with your cartoon. So you're and I try to do it. Um, if you know my work, it's, I try to do it. Uh, um, softly, not hit people over the head with mm-hmm. an idea, um, because the, they're just they'll just turn away, generally speaking. So, unless they agree with you, <laughs> in which case they'll laugh and share it with their friends. But um, you know, I started doing political cartoons when I was young, and I really I grew up in the '60s and '70s in Washington D.C. And you can, you, if you know your history, if you lived through it, you know what that was Certainly. like. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, I think humor. I mean, this you're the cartoonist, but 
humor is a great diffuser. And I know from all my years on on TV and appearances and speaking myself is it's 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 the great unifier. It's a great way of making people think as well. And 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 that's what happens. That's my reaction when I see your cartoons. Mm-hmm. You're not blatantly putting it out there with the statement. You're 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 letting it be interpreted. Well, I think also um, uh, yeah. going back to a point that you had made, Liza, is it's not as polarizing. It's almost more welcoming. You know, if in the bipartisan world that we live in, half the people get driven away by a headline or a clickbait or something like that. But a cartoon can really bring people mm-hmm. together. It can, uh, and uh, if, if it's done. Thoughtfully, I think. But cartoons, as we know from the news in the last 20 years, the cartoons can, can be very polarizing, as you said, and, and um, used the wrong way. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that cartoons cause uh, violence, but they, they have been catalysts for violence, as we know from the Danish cartoon controversies mm-hmm. and the Charlie Hebdo murders. So um, cartoons are, can be a lightning rod, too. So and historically, I mean, I've studied cartoons as well as drawn them. They can be unifiers, but they can also be divisive. And like they, because the the group that's in control of the culture will use humor to to keep people out. You know, they use it so like so like if you don't understand this joke, you don't belong. You know, the, or or use the the humor to make fun of the people out on the outside so that they they yeah. feel like they don't belong or they don't want to belong. So it's it can be a and, and that's in true in race, race, racism and um, sexism and and homophobic cartoons. So now you've also done a fair share of um, kind of just social and more fun and upbeat. Yeah, <laughs> I mean you're like the the queen cartoonist of of the red carpet. <laughs> <laughs> well, but those are, those are a bit different than the, the cartoons I do for the New Yorker. So that's but that's a lot of fun. Oh, that's so much fun. Um, but that's like that's those those drawings I do are when I'm when I'm there and I'm just drawing what I see on my iPad and sharing it on social media immediately and that's just like a visual journalism. It's like reporting through cartoons, no particular ideas there except in what I see. So that's that's my viewpoint. But um, yeah, I started drawing cartoons about life at the New Yorker. I did what they used to call uh, I don't think they're really using these phrase this phrase anymore a slice of life cartoon. If you look at right. New Yorker cartoons, you see a, a, a wide variety of ways of drawing humor. Um, different cartoonists go at it differently. And um, I'm the kind of cartoonist that's more quiet, and more slice of life, and sometimes political. So like when I first started out in the New York in the 80s, it was all about restaurants and food. Speaking of food, George. Sure. It was, so I did a lot of cartoons about um, about that, what was going on in New York at the time. And, and I think in the in the country as well. Everybody was talking about food. That was the first time we ever heard about risotto in the United States, right? Or radicchio. I did a couple of cartoons about about both those things. And it's, also, <laughs> it's also funny words and people's obsessions with food and people's obsessions with cooking. Food trends are always kind of funny to poke fun at too, you know. Um, now that that brings me to one question that I wanted to ask you is that a lot of the drawing that you do on social media looks like it just comes down to people watching. And being in New York City for so long, I just was curious, what are some of your favorite people watching moments? Because I'm sure you've seen some wacky stuff there. That's a big question, Alex. Um, I don't know. Just, you know, I don't, when I live draw on my tablet, either at the Oscars or, or I went to the Women's March, I went to the White House. I'm not looking for, I, well, I'm always attuned for wild moments, but um, 
I'm looking for the everyday. So I'm looking for people that are just doing their thing. And I, and New York, somebody's always doing something, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it can be weird. It can be just ordinary. And I like, like last, um, last week or two weeks ago, I was happened to be in grand central station. I'm just walking and I knew I was going to live draw. And I do the, I broadcast it also as I'm drawing. So I have to find a place to sit so I can hold my phone over my hand, which is drawing on an iPad and, and I talk to the camera, but I also draw what I'm seeing in front of me. And I was just looking at Grand Central, which I love. It's a beautiful, beautiful space. I know you guys agree. Um, and there was a man standing there just look, staring up at the ceiling and looking around, and eating a sandwich. And he had his dog on a leash. And there wasn't many people around him. But I just I just had to, to draw him because it was nothing special about it. Just a, a nice. The man thing. or the sandwich? <laughs> I didn't see anything. <laughs> But I love drawing people in the subway. Like I, I take the A train a lot, so it's a it's a bit of a ride. It's like tw a twenty five minute ride. Sometimes I live uptown. Well, so. New York City can be like Central Casting. Yeah. You can yeah. just get any True. kind of character and any kind of situation. I know, Every, never a dull moment. Yeah, right? I lived on the Upper East Side <laughs> for about five years, and one of my favorite things was just taking local trains just to see who got on and off, and just sitting in a corner of a subway car and just watching how people interact and what yes. they do so when i saw your train stuff on uh twitter and instagram i was really drawn to that because trains are such a great place to people watch they are train uh, i don't know i love trains and have you ever taken the train to um like to to uh jfk yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's a long train ride yeah, so is. you get to see the whole all of humanity getting on and off for 45 minutes in all the different environments that you have cartooned at or have drawn, what's one of your favorite venues or one of your favorite subjects? I, I like, um, well, I do like going to the Oscars. I love storytelling and I love movies. Um, but I also love, this is, I guess I'm bipolar that way. I also love the, the Academy Awards. So mm -hmm. I'm, I just said that I love the, the, the politics. So I loved being at the white house. So either both are, are fascinating to me, both worlds, they're, they're worlds, you know, they're worlds in and of themselves like New York. How about technology? And, and they're both kind of fictional sometimes. <laughs> 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 uh, I, I was just going to say, how about technology? How has that changed what you do? Because I think the live drawings on the iPad are so cool. But as an artist, is it harder? Is it easier? Is, is it different not having, you know, a pencil or a pen or, or yeah. whatever in your hand? It's just different. I, uh, I like them both. I can't. Yeah, I like them both. So the New Yorker cartoons I do for the magazine, for the print magazine, I still do on paper and with a pen, with a crow, actually a crow quill pen, if anybody remembers what that is. Mm -hmm. Dip, you dip it in an inkwell. That's how I've always done it, and I keep it that way. But um, the live drawing and sometimes illustration for people, I, I do commissions. I'll do it on my iPad because it's, I love it. The iPad, I use a great app um, that I'll mention because people might want to know. It's called Paper, and it's it's made by a company mm -hmm. called, uh, called um, WeTransfer. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's so simple. I don't, I'm not a big fan personally for, of the complicated apps that are out there. This is so simple. It looks like a palette, like an artist palette. So. And can you recreate the effects that you get with the Crow Quinn quill pen on the app? Do you yeah. think? Kind of. Yeah. 
Kind of. And people, actually, this, this app really looks like watercolor when you do the wash. It looks like watercolor. People, I, I, I fool people. Not that I'm trying to fool them, but I fool them. But it's, it's great to have all these tools. And I, I, I'm like, I, I love technology. I love social media. So I love, and I love communicating with people. Cartoons are about dialogue. They're about talking to, to, to the world about what's going on. Well, Liza, we're very, very fortunate that you are talking to the world and the world <laughs> does need you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that was Liza Donnelly, award-winning cartoonist, writer, and speaker. For more on Liza's new book, Very Funny Ladies, The New Yorker Cartoonists, visit LizaDonnelly.com. I know for me, external noise can lessen my creativity. Then out of nowhere, I come across a cartoon that changes my day. Important topics? Sure. But all put in perspective, it reminds me to lighten up. Embrace the gift of laughter in any medium. I'm George Hirsch with today's Good to Know. According to MIT, America's most famous cookie was an accident. Ruth Wakefield, a dietitian and food lecturer, bought a tourist lodge named the Tall House Inn in Massachusetts where she prepared home-cooked meals. In 1930, Ruth mixed a batch of cookies for her guests and found she was out of baker's chocolate. She substituted broken pieces of semi-sweet chocolate that were given to her by Andrew Nestle. She had expected the chocolate to melt in the dough to create chocolate cookies, but the result was a butter cookie with bits of chocolate. She called the new treat Tall House Crunch Cookies. But the word and the popularity reached back to Andrew Nestle, who went on to buy the rights to the Tall House name. Ruth's compensation would be a lifetime supply of chocolate. In 1939, the recipe was printed on the Tall House cookie on the chip package, making the cookie the most popular in America. For me, the best way to update Ruth's recipe is with chunks. After all, who could pass up a chocolate chunk cookie? And that's good to know. Recently, Alex and I were in the kitchen, creating some exciting dishes and having fun with food. Is cooking the recipe for happiness? The time spent in the kitchen can enhance your mood and promote a healthy mental well-being. While cooking's first task is to satisfy the body's need for food, it is a perfect way to nurture the mind. The act of cooking improves a person's creativity, sense of accomplishment, and satisfaction. My experience has seen firsthand baking and cooking may be precisely the recipe needed for added happiness to one's life. Hey, Alex. Hey, George. How's it going? Good, good, good. So we've known each other for some time now, but when did you first start cooking? I don't even mean professionally. I mean, I don't even know. What was your first thing you started cooking? Well, uh, my father went to culinary school. So when I was a kid, I, it's actually not even cooking the first thing that I remember. The first memory that I have is him teaching me how to use a chef's knife. And I have no idea how old I was, maybe like seven or eight. Uh, I, I was small and I had like uh -huh. this little step stool. And, you know, he told me how to pinch the blade with your thumb and your forefinger and then how to hold the knife. And that was my first introduction into knifing skills. And I think the thing that I loved about it was like knives and fire and heat, all that stuff is dangerous, but it was like learning the discipline and the control to use it to create something on your own really appealed to me. And I think that's carried through in my cooking and my love of cooking now is, you know, I'm a little bit OCD and uh -huh. I like things like my mise en place being set up, everything in its place. I like having my prep work done right. I love to look at a countertop when I'm making a recipe and see all of those little tiny bowls with every single ingredient perfectly cut, ready to go into the pot in the order that they're supposed to. So with 
than your cooking and your first experience, when did you first derive like self-satisfaction? Like you, you prepared food for somebody or people and you brought them pleasure. When did you first come in contact with that experience? Um, bringing people pleasure. It really wasn't until I started cooking professionally, to be honest with you. I never really mm-hmm. cooked at home. That wasn't really something that I did. Uh, I was not the typical story. I mean, my grandmother, my German grandmother was an amazing cook. And when I was mm-hmm. little, I thought everything was German because she was German. <laughs> but I didn't realize sure. that she had all these cookbooks <laughs> and she was making like Chinese style duck and she was making French crepes and she was making Chateaubriand and all of these different food items and cuisines from all around the world. But because she was German, you thought they were German. I I just thought it was all German. (laughs) So I I was always surrounded by great cooks, but I don't have that typical story. You know, I could tell you, oh, I've spent hours in the kitchen with my dad and my grandma, and they're both great chefs, and that grew my love. That's not true. What happened for me was I was like 14 years old. And I wanted like Ralph Lauren jeans or something. And I think I was getting jeans from Kmart. And my mom basically said, well, if that's the kind of jeans you want, then get a job. And my best Uh friend had just gotten a job as a busboy. So I didn't have working papers yet, but I knew the restaurant business was my only way in to get some type of a job without having the working papers. So I went and applied at a family style Italian restaurant in Hampton Bays here. And they hired me as a busboy. And After about a year of cleaning up other people's mess, I just said, how do I get into the kitchen? I don't want to do this. Right. So I moved to another restaurant because that place didn't really want me to cook. And then I moved to a different restaurant, worked as a busboy there for a couple of months. And then I said to the chef, you know, I'd really like to learn how to cook. And he took me in the kitchen and took me under his wing. And it might sound stupid, but the first moment of satisfaction that I remember was cooking a perfectly crispy golden crab cake. Because Ah. some of the other cooks would get yelled at around me. It'd be a little undercooked or it'd be a little bit burnt, you know. And I just remember the satisfaction when I put a spatula underneath the crab cake itself, taking it off of a sizzle plate to flip it. And you just knew it didn't stick anymore because, as you know, when a protein cooks perfectly, it doesn't stick. You shouldn't have to wedge that spatula under there and jam it in to get a piece of meat or fish or a crab cake to turn over. And when I got that first perfect flip, I just kind of knew – This is for me because I like to do things the right way over and over and over again. It's part of my OCD. And that was like a formulative moment for me in cooking was I got a satisfaction over the challenge of trying to do something perfectly time and time again. So then yourself, it was more about your self-satisfaction than satisfaction from others of of your cooking. Yeah, because I think I might have even been a little bit self-conscious about my cooking because I didn't have that background. I didn't want to be a chef as a kid. I didn't Mm -hmm. go to culinary school. So for a long time, for me, it was about learning enough to build the confidence to know that I was good at cooking. And then the satisfaction of serving other people came later. Um, One of my favorite times is actually time that you came over. It was my birthday and I remember for my birthday, all I wanted to do was cook a dinner for friends and family. And you Mm -hmm. came over, uh, my friends Mike and Mia, who own a commercial fishing boat, came, Uh, my friend Gary, who works in fashion. We had this eclectic group of people, right? right? And we we were at my parents' house. I had a big smoker at the time. We smoked a prime rib. We had some caviar. We had foie gras. We just made a really nice but simple dinner with really perfect ingredients with really close friends and nice wine. And that was one of the first times that I really appreciated 
how serving people something that they might not be able to get on their own can really change how they view quality time with each other, right? Because sometimes you go to a restaurant, you might not get a good meal. Or if you really are good at cooking and you're really a master of your craft, you know you can make something at home for friends and family better than anything they can buy. And you put a lot of care and thought and pre-preparation about that. I remember weeks ahead of that, you were talking about that, that meal. Yeah. And you and I were kind of menu planning it and bouncing ideas off of each other while we were doing other events just to really dial it in. And I think for me, it's about providing an experience to friends and family that they just couldn't even buy. You know, there's something to be said that you can't even spend money to go out and get this experience. So after that dinner then, um, did that begin a change of your thought of, well, you know what? I can bring this kind of pleasure in, in other circumstances and other situations. Yeah, uh, I think that it reaches out into all aspects of life, but it also changed how I treated cooking also because cooking didn't become something that I just did in order to make something perfect, like you said, for myself to, to prove to myself that I could do something. But it made me realize that I was in an industry that is based on hospitality and making people have a good experience. Uh, a lot, you know, a lot of times you'll go to a place and they don't want to do substitutions or, you know, chefs will say no to things or be cranky. Chefs have a reputation for being angry. And I remember one thing that changed my mind about cooking was when I was working at River Cafe and I was talking to the chef about how they handle substitutions and people's requests. And Chef Brad said to me, if somebody wants to come in and order an omelet for dinner, they're going to pay a lot for that omelet, but they're going to have the best omelet of their life. And that really rung true to me, like, people are here for a good experience, and they're paying for it. So give them whatever they want, but just make sure that it's a great experience. An accountant, a mailman, and a psychiatrist walk into a bar. Do you know where they are? (laughs) Sure, it's where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. Joining us is one of the music greats, songwriter Gary Portnoy, best known for co-writing and singing Where Everybody Knows Your Name. The theme song from the hit television series Cheers, as well as the themes to Punky Brewster and Mr. Belvedere, among others. Gary was honored by the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers for having composed the most performed television themes for six consecutive years. He is a two-time Emmy nominee for the Cheers theme, I Still Believe in Me, a song he co-wrote for an episode of Fame. His songs have been recorded by many notables, including Dolly Parton and Air Supply. Hi, Gary. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me. Now, you're Brooklyn born and bred, but you were a Long Islander. You moved to Long Island. Yes. Very young age, yes. Was your time on Long Island and your roots on Long Island, uh, did it have an impact on your your music career? Undoubtedly. Yeah. No question about it. I was a lonely kid. And my grandparents gave me a piano. And uh, I, I don't know, I was just drawn to it immediately and uh, found solace and uh, salvation and inspiration, you name it, um, from a really, really, um, a really young age. And um, later on, I connected with other kids in junior high and high school, and I played in bands. Uh, I can't believe I did that because I didn't do it as an adult. but. I uh, played in a lot of live performances, a lot of shows, dances, uh, Battle of the Bands, uh, things like that. And uh, 
And so, yeah, I was immersed in music. Um, you know, I don't know that it was Long Island centric, but I was immersed in music on Long Island from like the moment I got there till the moment I left. Would you consider yourself a musical prodigy? Because you didn't have like formal training when you started. You just uh, picked up and ran. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I think maybe I could have been if I had pursued it. <laughs> but I I did have a I, I did seem to have like a natural um, musical ability, but I had no interest in pursuing it formally. Um, I didn't like school and music was my escape from, you know, the rigidness of school, be here, do this, do that. So I didn't, I didn't want, you know, I didn't want that to be part of what music was to me. So it's possible I might've been able to have been a, you know, a prodigy or a performer, but I really, that was everything music wasn't to me. I liked the lack of structure, the lack of discipline, and the lack of assignments. So I never really pursued my potential as a quote-unquote musician. And I think that's how I kind of fell into songwriting, where there were no classes and nobody to teach you. What was it like the first time you went into a studio? Oh, it was amazing. It was in between high school and college. It was on Long Island, ultrasonic, in Hempstead. It was notorious for us because I believe Billy Joel had recorded uh, Cold Spring yes, Harbor there. Yeah. So um, yeah. In, be- in between high school and college, uh, I had written some songs and uh, a few friends and I, we went in there and, uh, you know, it was overwhelming and awe-inspiring to, you know, to have never been uh, recorded before. It was also a little unnerving because, you know, when you're paying your own studio bill, and it, you're watching the clock as much as you're watching what, <laughs> what they're playing. And, 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 and you learn as you go on that nothing in the studio ever takes less time than you allot for it. So, it, But it, it was an amazing experience. And uh, it was like a last-ditch attempt to avoid having to go to college. And it almost worked, but not quite in time. Do you think the structure or not having the structure of a classroom and being able to work outside of that environment helped you in almost any kind of environment to write and play and perform? Yeah, absolutely. Because there was no right or wrong. You know, there was no right answer. There was no wrong answer. It it was kind of like, you know, self-discovery, self-exploration. You were kind of like writing your own story, no pun intended. So, I mean, at the time, I certainly didn't think of it in those terms, but, but now looking back, yeah, for me, it was everything, you know, one, one time in fifth grade, I was looking out the window and it was this kid, this local kid who went to a Catholic school, it was some kind of holiday for them. So he was out on the field kicking a soccer ball and I was sitting in the classroom watching the second hand on the clock and, you know, and I said, I just want to be on the other side of that window kicking that soccer ball. And that's kind of like a metaphor, I think, for what music was for me. It got me on the other side of the window, uh, (laughs) kicking the soccer ball instead of sitting at the desk and, and, you know, not to take anything away from wonderful schools. Well, school and my elementary school was wonderful. And the teachers, nothing, not to take anything away from them. It just, you know, it wasn't for me. And to make matters worse, I was good at school. So then you have expectations put upon you. So I just wanted to be on the other side of the window on the field kicking the soccer ball. Well, fortunately for us, because you have uh, 
created many, many wonderful songs um, for many uh, top performers. But, you know, I want to hone in right now on probably the most played song um, globally, globally, in dozens and dozens of, of countries around the world, um, which is, of course, Everybody Knows Your Name, the Cheers theme song. Did that just come to you like in a moment? Or was it a series of, of different uh, uh, variations of it? The song itself pre came pretty quickly in a moment, but the lead up to it was that it wasn't the first song that we submitted to the people at Cheers. So there was a very, you know, just torturous uh, series of <laughs> attempts and rejections leading up to that song. But that particular song on that particular day came pretty nicely. You know, it kind of flowed pretty smoothly, yeah. I read something that, like, there was one line that you scrambled within a taxi cab. Yeah, because we had, when we originally wrote Where Everybody Knows Your Name, we had different lyrics. The, mm. the, the original verse that we wrote was... Um, more centered on the bar and Sam alone. It was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll give you a little taste of it. Thank you. Singing the blues when the Red Sox lose. It's a crisis in your life. On the run, cause all your girlfriends want to be your wife. And the laundry tickets in the wash. <clears throat> Should have cleared my throat this morning. So that was the... Um, Outstanding. Those are the original words that we wrote. And when they embraced the song and said they wanted to use it, it was with the understanding we would rewrite those words. And uh, we were desperate at that point because we had been working on this show for months. So we, we just did whatever it took. And we were, in fact, in a, in a cab heading downtown to the recording studio, still working on the final, <laughs> the final version. And uh, we never really played it and tried it out until we got to the piano at the, at the studio. And those were the words that they wound up uh, they wound up using. Do you think it was um, just years of no's or months of no's that the yes brought the success? I, I think the success of the song was based on a lot. I mean, I guess it's a really good song. I like it. But so many things had to fall into place for it to be successful that I think there was a large, it was kind of like a, like a fateful metaphysical component to it, because really, you know, the show might've gone on and run one time mm -hmm. or 10 times. And so I think what ultimately became the success of that song, so many things had to fall into place. And yeah, if, you know, as it turns out, the, the rejecting of those other versions was, was a gift from God, <laughs> probably the best thing that could have <laughs> happened. But at the time it doesn't feel that way. It feels like, you know, they, they turned down another song and we're never going to get this. So, <laughs> you know, so, sure. yeah. So looking back, there's that one song, uh, country song, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And, you know, you don't, right. real, you don't realize at the time that it's a really good thing, you know, as you're getting an ulcer, having one song after another turned down, <laughs> you don't realize that there's a larger picture and you're headed to something you know, really great. So I think a lot of stuff went into, you know, the ultimate success of that song. 
What was the process like for you, Gary, writing a song for basically a show that wasn't on TV yet? Did they send you clips of a pilot or how do you get a feel for it? Well, they, um, they were very verbal. I mean, the Charles, Glenn and Les Charles, the writers of Cheers are, I just think, you know, TV geniuses, maybe just geniuses, I should say. And they were mm-hmm. conveying to us what they wanted atmospherically and they were telling us what wasn't right about the songs they were turning down. And, and so, and I believe before the final one, I think they sent us a script. Yeah. They sent us a script for the first episode. And so all of a sudden there were characters and there was dialogue and it was a really good script. (laughs) They, they, They could really write. Um, I had never read any other sitcom scripts till that point, but I read about 10,000 after. And that's the best one I ever read in terms of establishing characters and atmosphere and really letting you know who these people were. So that undoubtedly helped. And in the end, they said something like, you know, we just want saddish kind of people in a, in a bar, a smoky bar at two in the morning. So they were giving hints and clues and, you know, all along the way. Um, but ultimately, I guess we had to um, figure it out, you know, translate that into a song. Now, one of the things, Gary, that I'm just intrigued by, and I've gone through the lyrics and uh, some of our, our, our background of, of your, your experiences, mm-hmm. but the actual, some of the lyrics, are they life experiences or hung the cat up by its tail? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. Um, we were, um, I'm trying to remember. We were just thinking about, you know, we, in those original lyrics that I quoted to you, we, you know, mm-hmm. singing the blues when the Red Sox lose, it's a crisis. In your, yes. We were just approaching it from things that might lead you to seek comfort in a bar among like-minded people, among friends. And we got a little carried away, I guess, or we, we got a little goofy. You know, I remember trying to get the line, Mary Tyler Moore goes off the air. You know, things that make you sad. And right. make you, we couldn't get it. We just couldn't get it in there. But um, so, you know, and, and so then we decided it was okay to cross into the satirical. And I think I may have heard from an animal rights activist or two about hangs the, hung the cat up by a tail. It's nothing we were espousing. It's something the kid did <laughs> that made his mother or father need to go where everybody knows your name. And, yeah. I, and I think it, it kind of it's, – it's about the beginning when just take a break from all your worries. Yes. I, mean, I think it's just a lighthearted look at life. That's just, all just – yes. That, that's yes. all it is. And we certainly, certainly never imagined we could right. ever be offending right. anybody. But, you know. <laughs> but it's also very important to point out that – um, with the success of this song, this song has had a major impact with people all over the globe, yeah. positively. Yeah. Uh, can you share a couple stories? Yeah. Um, well, you know, so it's honestly overwhelming to me. Um, and it came along with the internet because it's the only way that these people could communicate with me. When the internet came along, I, I just, you know, it's, it's really a little overwhelming uh from you know you know from very heavy things people who tell me help them get through their chemotherapy um very heavy things um a woman wrote to me 
And she said she had to have this song with her everywhere she goes. So she had it tattooed onto her body and I didn't believe her. But then she sent me pictures and it's true. She tattooed her leg with, uh, <laughs> with, with the intros, the intro music. And, um, you know, those are extreme examples. A lot of people just remembering bonding, bonding with their parents. And now they're watching it with their kids. Um, and a lot of stories about the song, you know, having nothing to do with Cheers itself, you know, it, right. it, going on. So it's really been over, um, you know, kind of just remarkable to me because uh, you, you, you can't possibly have any idea when you do something, the breath and the scope and the life it can have. It's just been an incredible blessing with this song. Now, the original version was uh, a shorter version, correct? It was not the 228 longer version, um, is it? It actually, it gets complicated. There actually, It actually was because there was another whole verse that was never used anywhere. You know, I, I don't remember exactly how we stitched it together. You know, it probably, it might have been two minutes. There may have been no, there was no musical break, perhaps. There was no mm -hmm. saxophone solo. But other than that, it was almost the same length because we did write three verses at the very beginning um so we never did a 60 second version until they edited it you know until we went in to record mm -hmm. it for the show and you know obviously it had to conform to yeah, tv length but we always had all these other verses floating around and then we added a musical break and it became two and a half minutes and those what seven beats to uh or is it six beats or seven beats that part of the song and that was to get the people back from the fridge to oh, the, you mean the the uh, the intro, yeah, yes, yeah. I don't know how many beats it is, but yeah, it was just a it was just a beckoning, a clarion call, you know. Come back, commercials almost over. Come, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Because otherwise, we thought the song was just really quiet, really soft, kind of slow, and we didn't know if if you know the people at Cheers never heard it without that intro. We literally, we felt we needed to glue it on or it just might be too somber. So we fooled around and, and, and came up with that, you know, get in here kind of uh, <laughs> intro. Yeah. <laughs> when they first accepted the version of the song that would run on the show, did you have any idea that it would go on to become so iconic and live such a long life? Not in a million trillion years. I knew that I loved the song and I knew that the script they had written was exceptional. But beyond that, no way, no way. How, you know, not in a million years. And, and as it turned out, when the show first came on, it was failing miserably. It was like the lowest rated show of all 66. Back then there were only 66 shows. Right. <laughs> you had your CBS, your NBC and your ABC. <laughs> and it was a couple of weeks, the lowest rated show in the Nielsen ratings. Unfortunately, NBC was at their absolute bottom at the time. And aside from the fact that they liked it, they really had nothing to replace it with. So they let it keep going. Well, thank you, Gary, for joining us today and bringing us your cheer. That was Gary Portnoy, one of Long Island's greats, songwriter, singer extraordinaire of where everybody knows your name from the sitcom Cheers. It is widely considered to be the most popular and famous theme song of all time. For more on Gary and his music, visit GaryPortnoy.com. The next time you need a pickup, listen. 
But more importantly, read Gary's lyrics from the poet Life Prophet, who may just happen to cheer up your day. For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and our podcast, visit WLIW.org radio and ChefGeorgeHirsch.com. And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WLIWFM and at George Hirsch. So when I think of happy food, I think of cookies mostly. But if I'm going to drill down a little further, Alex, I think it's going to be cookies with chocolate. Yeah, when I think of happy food, I think of you baking cookies and you baking brownies <laughs> and me picking them off the sheet tray before they get packaged up and sent to wherever they're going. <laughs> well, they, they are definitely good recipes. Um, they really are, you know, and sometimes they're reformulated in a lot of different ways. But it really does break down to that 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 chocolate. I mean, they you know, there's a reason why they say, you know, chocolate is sensuous. It, it stimulates the brain. Um, and, but in the recipe and, and people are always asking for recipes, you know, give me a cookie recipe, give me a chocolate chip recipe, brownie recipe, but it's the chocolate itself. If you're using good quality chocolate. Yeah. Good quality chocolate is always important with anything we do. High quality ingredients are important, right? But when you say that chocolate has an effect on the brain, it actually really does. Uh, there have been studies done that have shown that chocolate contains a number of compounds associated with mood-lifting chemicals. Uh, a few of these are phenylethylamine, a natural antidepressant, and one of the uh, chemicals that your brain produces as you fall in love. There's tryptophan, an amino acid present in small quantities in chocolate, and that is linked to the production of serotonin. So chocolate has chemicals that literally produce happiness. You know, let's talk, you know, even just some basic tips on chocolate, you know, sourcing chocolate. Some of the best countries to get chocolate from is like Belgium, Switzerland, yeah. Ecuador. Ecuador. I was going to say South America has great chocolate and Ecuador especially. But one of my prime rules is make sure it's first off fair trade because there's a lot of bad, bad things that go on sometimes with, with, with cocoa harvesting. And a lot of times if, if whoever it is, a family harvesting it, uh, a company producing it that makes a fair trade or an organic fair trade, mm -hmm. just because they're going out to get that label shows there's an attention they're going to detail. The extra mile. You're getting yeah. a high quality chocolate. You're you not really getting are. a bad fair trade chocolate, you know? And I've actually seen where people bite into the cookie, bite into that chocolate chip cookie or the brownie, and their eyes just light up. And yeah. it really is, is, the, is that cocoa, the chocolate itself. Well, you've taught me too about the palate, right? I mean, what does the palate of your mouth feel like when you have some kind of bad giant corporation chocolate, candy company style chocolate compared to a good, small pr produced Ecuadorian high cacao chocolate? Uh, what does it do to your palate? Because that's something I learned from you. Yeah. I, when you're done digesting it, you know, is there anything on the roof of your mouth? Because those are going to be all those bad oils that they that they pump into the chocolate. Um, there's a reason why, you know, that slogan came out with, you know, the chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your hands. Um, it does melt in your mouth because I think the last time I looked, you know, my temperature was 98.6, you know, typical human body temperature. But, but chocolate will start to melt at 88 degrees. 
um, yeah. or start to soften. And then tempering chocolate should be at about 91 to 98 in that range. And that keeps the chocolate pristine, like especially if you're making ganache or a finishing chocolate and you want that nice shine. You don't want those molecules blown out of it. So if, you, if you're taking your chocolate and just throwing it in the microwave and you think that's going to do it, no, you're going to separate the, the molecules away from it and it's going to affect the texture and the taste. And not only that, but most good chocolatiers or restaurants with their own pastry department often have temperature-controlled rooms. So that even once that chocolate is tempered over the double boiler or whatever you're using, you bring into the room that you're making the chocolates or, or piping things or making candies, it doesn't change the temperature and the chocolate doesn't break, right? That's yeah. That's that's the most important thing is that is that tempering process. It's funny. One of my uh, I guess funny experiences that came up with with chocolate was uh, we were filming on one of the major uh, cruise ships and it was over Easter time. The executive chef came around to not just our cabin but every crew member's cabin, and one of my uh, my director at the time got this huge chocolate egg. We all got these beautifully decorated Easter eggs. Decorated magnificent, and you they were more for, for show, but they were highly edible. But this particular director, you know, kind of dove into it. So he was on a, a chocolate high for three days coming off because he ate this like two foot high chocolate <laughs> egg. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it, it, it does have its pleasures, but at the same time, it's again everything in moderation. Glad to have you join us on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner, along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Allie Gimble. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC. Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes and our podcast, visit wiw.org radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll see you next week right here on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio.